0: The text for the sermon this evening is two verses in the book of Proverbs, but we're going to read sacred scripture from 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17 beginning at verse 34 and reading to the end of that chapter. Second Kings 17, verse 34, Unto this day they do after the former manners. They fear not the Lord, neither do they after their statutes, or after their ordinances, or after the law and commandment which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, Ye shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him shall ye fear, and him shall ye worship, and to him shall ye do sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, ye shall observe to do forevermore, and ye shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, ye shall not forget, neither shall ye fear other gods. But the Lord your God ye shall fear, and he shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Howbeit they did not hearken, but they did after their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. With that in the back of our minds, let's turn to two verses in the book of Proverbs. First, Proverbs 14, verse 26. And then Proverbs 29, verse 25. These two verses contrast one another. And we'll make up our text for this evening. Proverbs 14, verse 26, first of all. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. And then, chapter 29, <clears throat> Proverbs 29, verse 25. 29, verse 25. The fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. loved of God, the question that the next generation must face is: will they fear God or will they fear man? Of course, there are many questions that the next generation will face, and anybody who is an adult here knows that very well. Will the next generation be able to resist the flood of sexual sin and temptation that pours over this culture? Will they resist the winds of theological change and liberalism? that affects various quarters of the church? Will they resist the lawlessness that affects the age and even the church of Jesus Christ at times as though the grace of God that redeems us does not also bring us back to God's law saying, how may I honor this will of my Father who has redeemed me? Will the next generation resist the temptation to enter into a tower made with men's hands called legalism in order to escape the threats of the culture around them. And yet, though all of those questions are real, the central question that the next generation faces is the same as the question that this generation faces and that every generation of the church faces. It's the question that lies at the heart of the book of Proverbs, and that lies at the heart of the contrast between these two verses that make up our text. Will we fear God, or will we fear man? The theme tonight is fear God, not man. We'll notice first two fears. And here we will treat the fear of man first, and then the fear of God. The second point is two effects. There are God-ordained effects of both of these fears, and we'll treat the effects of the fear of man first, and that is given to us in the text as It leads us into a snare. And then the effects of the fear of God, which is a strong confidence and a refuge. And the third point is two generations, parents and children. One generation and the next are given to us in the text. Fear God, not man. Two fears, two effects, and two generations. The concept of fear in the Bible is a unique and somewhat mysterious thing. Beyond now the definition of fear that is abject terror at something and flees from something, there's another definition of that word fear that's taken up by the scriptures, and it refers to the basic human response a God, whether that God is now the true God of heaven and earth, or some idol that men fall before. Fear is the basic human response to a God, a response of reverence for this being, the response of awe to this being or thing, of making this thing big and great in the mind, so that this thing carries weight with me, and so that I view myself in light of this big, great being as being safe in my relationship with them, my identity is fixed by my relationship to that being. Of course, the Scriptures take that concept of fear and use it for the fear of Jehovah, the true God, where that Fear is said in its right context, and we'll get to that in a moment, but first notice that the Scriptures use the term simply to describe this basic human response to a God, and that's why throughout sacred Scripture, God not only tells his people to fear him, but says, don't fear idols. We read that in Second Kings chapter 17. The Lord charges those with whom he made a covenant, saying, Ye shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, but the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Him shall ye fear, and him shall ye worship. And again, ye shall not fear other gods, but the Lord your God ye shall fear. You see, when Adam fell, the man became totally depraved, It did not remove out of humanity this basic response of fear. Just like it didn't remove out of humanity the response of laughter or the response of crying. But what total depravity did is it took this basic response of man and it corrupted it utterly. And it set it upon something else other than Jehovah God. Man cannot but give the response of fear to a God. He has to. He knows that he is dependent. He knows that he is a vulnerable being on this earth. He knows that he's not okay entirely on his own. And so he cannot but set something up before his mind that he fears, that he makes bigger than him, and that he Gives obedience to, that he honors, worships, stands in awe of, and seeks for himself safety and security, and wholeness from. He must fear. But apart from the grace of God after the fall, that response of fear will only be given by a man to something other than the true God of heaven and earth who created that man and put him on this globe and gave him food to eat and water to drink and air to breathe. And he will give that response of fear to an idol or at the end of the day to man himself. And here is the greatest affront to Jehovah God, the greatest evidence of man's lost state and his depravity is that he gives this response of fear and reverence not to the God of all the earth, but he gives it to something else made by man. And the greatest affront gives it to man himself. Whether it's an individual man that he sets up before himself and makes great in his own mind, or whether it is collective humanity or some portion of collective humanity, He takes what should be given to Jehovah, the God who has created him, and he gives it to man himself. It's not a lesser expression of man's depravity. That a man worships no actual idol. As though he's more enlightened because he worships man himself. In fact, it's a greater expression of depravity. At least in idolatry, man has the sense to make something else up False as it is, to set up as great before his mind. But, for example, in this country, men set up, men themselves, puny little men, and they make them into this great being before which they will give awe and reverence, and lodge their own identity, and find their own sense of safety and security in him. That's an idolatry too. And in many, many ways worse. And then idolatry lives, beloved, in every son of Adam. And it lives even in the remaining old man. Of those who are regenerated by the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that's why, for example... Teenager will have excessive concern about their appearance. About their clothes, about their hair, about that pimple that came on their skin last night and now they have to go to school. And what is everybody going to think of me? And not just teenagers, but adults too. Nothing wrong with wanting to look nice to a certain extent, but there's a line there, isn't there? or becomes an undue preoccupation with what others think about me and how I look and how I dress. And it's the fear of man. I've made man great in my mind. I've set him up. And I'm finding my identity in him, my sense of peace and security and wholeness. And what they think of how I look. Man is the biggest thing in my mind. And this fear that I am giving to them. I should be giving to God. And what does God think of me? And I should be preoccupied with that in my mind. But I'm not. Instead I'm preoccupied with what they think about me. And they become my fear. My God to whom I give this awe and reverence. They're big in my mind. Or maybe the one with fear of man becomes obsessed with his reputation, with how people think about him. It's good, of course, to have a good reputation and to seek a good reputation. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Good thing. But there's a line there, isn't there? And a person can become almost obsessed with their reputation, that people think this about me. I want people to think this or that. I want them to think that I'm really hard working or that I'm flawless. And so I begin to put up a front about myself that isn't even real. And I begin to live fake before other people because my sense of identity is based on what they think about me. And I want them to think certain things about me Who I am and my security and my identity is being given over to these men and what they think about me. In that situation, it becomes easy to hide a second life, a double life. You're already living fake in front of other people and now you can hide a double life underneath it too. Perhaps one's fear of man expresses itself in avoidance. Of other people. Because I feel like I can't keep the appearance. That I want to keep up in front of others. In front of them. And so I separate myself. I don't want them to see through the cracks. And I'm afraid that they might see something about me. That I don't want them to see about me. And I fear them. They are big in my mind. And God is small in my mind. And my sense of identity and self-worth is based on what they think of me and so I'm going to hide myself so that they can't see what I don't want them to see. Or maybe because I'm afraid of being rejected by them, I think they're going to see something about me that they don't like and they're going to reject me and that will crush my world because I fear them. I revere them. I'm in awe of them. And my identity, my self-worth, and my peace is in what they think about me. Or this? Fear of man can be living off of the praises of other people. And yes, ministers can get caught up in this one if we're not careful. The reason why we do what we do in the church of Jesus Christ even is because I'm after that word, that commendation. I want to hear, thank you. I want to hear, you did a great job, well done. And I'm not living before the face of Jehovah God. He's not the big one in my mind before whom I'm living, but before these people and their acceptance of me and their words of acceptance. Of me, And I can live off of their nice word for a couple of weeks and then it starts to run dry and then I need it again because this is my food and this is my drink. This is my identity. This is my self-worth. I am fearing them. And so I need more and more and more. Their praises are what give me life. And the lack of them is what gives me death. Because man is the greatest thing in my mind. My identity is from the fear and honor of men. I live before the face of man. Is that you? Is that me? Wasn't this the heart of Peter's problem when he denied the Lord three times? Of course, Peter thought that he was free of the fear of man. And when the Lord Jesus Christ was close to him, <clears throat> and there was no threat of any other human beings rejected him, of rejecting him. He probably was to a certain extent free from the fear of man. I'll die for you, Lord Jesus. Though all men forsake you, I won't forsake you. I'd be willing to even die before my fellow men. Let them kill me rather than deny you or walk away from you. But then. Lord Jesus was taken. And he was away from Peter in another room being tried. And in to fill the void came other people, other men around that fire in the courtyard of the high priest's house. And all of a sudden, the fear of man starts to rise in Peter's mind and heart. And the fear of that Christ, who is a little ways away now from me starts to get lower and Peter's sense of identity and his sense of self-worth was based on the approval of these people around me and he did the unthinkable he forsook the Lord even with cursings and mockings because his food and his drink was the approval of these who were around him the lesson there stay close to God close to Christ. Because if not, then the fear of man will fill the void. It will. How's your devotional life through the week? Stay close to your Christ so that He's big in your mind. He's the one before whom I live. My identity is in Him. I revere Him. The only thing that ever delivers from the fear of man is the fear of God. Nothing else can do it. God himself fights the fear of man that is within us. By giving us the fear of himself and by growing us in the fear of himself. You can only fight fear with fear. You can only fight a twisted, depraved fear with a glorious, righteous, holy, childlike fear and reverence for the God of all the earth. A greater fear before a greater being. A fear that makes the other fears look empty and burnt, and deflated, and ultimately unrighteous as it is. When the Spirit works the fear of Jehovah into his people, into one in whom he's planted new life, he sets himself before his own as big and glorious, reveals himself to them so that he is great in their mind. He carries weight in their mind, and they get their identity from their relationship to him, and their sense of self-worth from who He is. He infuses new qualities into this fear, this basic response that man must give to a God. And he takes fear to its home. He lodges it where it must be, where it's created to be, as unto Jehovah, the God of all the earth. And this fear rises to its highest point. It comes becomes something so substantive, so qualitatively different than the fear of anything else. Especially as he sets before his people the twin attributes of himself, of his holiness and of his love. As his children see him high and lifted up, and his train filling the temple, all glorious, majestic, wonderful, powerful, holy, pure of purer eyes than to behold evil. So, if this is a God we realize of substance. He's not a God to be trifled with. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of this living God apart from Jesus Christ. He's so holy and so pure. And at the same time, That this holy God condescends to us in Jesus Christ. Of the depths of His love takes the needs of His own justice upon Himself for you and for me who are nothing. Little dust balls spinning on this little earth in the midst of this vast universe. What is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man that thou visitest him. And these two attributes of God especially are held before the mind and the heart and the soul of God's children. It's like the coming together of baking soda and vinegar and it produces this bubbling forth of the fear of the Lord, an effervescent view of him that is high and holy and great and majestic and who loves me yet yeah. in Jesus Christ. Did you know that one of God's names in the Bible is actually the fear? Genesis 31 verse 53. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge betwixt us. And Jacob swear by the fear of his father Isaac. By the fear of his father Isaac. And normally, when the scriptures say that, it says by the God of his father Isaac. But here it says... By the fear. He's so great and glorious that he's called the fear. Remember the situation here. Jacob has just run away from home. At the fear of man. The fear of Esau. He's just received the birthright blessing when Esau wanted it. And Esau has vowed to kill Jacob after father Isaac dies. And Jacob flees in the fear of man. And then he comes to Bethel. And he falls asleep at Bethel. And he dreams a dream, a God-given dream. In this dream, heaven itself opens up. And God, in all of his glory, is revealed to Jacob. And there's that ladder and the angels going up and down. Jacob wakes up from his dream. And he says, how dreadful is this place? This is nothing other than the house of God. And he sees the majesty of God. And the fear of God in Jacob overcomes the fear of man. And not just because of God's glory and his holiness, but also because of his love. As the verse previous to that, as God saying to Jacob, Behold, I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest. And will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken of to me. That this glorious God opened himself up to me in this dream. Is also the God who loves me. That overcomes in Jacob. This fear of man. Isn't that what does it for you? Gives you the fear of the Lord. Doesn't that fear of the Lord rise up within you, especially at the foot of the cross, beloved, where you see both His holiness and His love come together? In preparation for the Lord's Supper next Sunday, why don't you come to the foot of that cross tonight and in this week? Because you're going to set yourselves next Sunday morning before the bread and the wine. Prepare your heart for that. Because it's not just bread, it's bread broken. And it's not just wine, it's wine poured out. Here is the holiness of this God. So is sin repugnant to him that he will punish it. In his own beloved son. And so is love in him. That he will punish it. In his own beloved son. For you. For me. May fear of him. Awe of him. And wonder of him. Rise up within you now. And at the supper celebration. My identity is in him My sense of who I am is found in this great being. Fear then becomes a childlike fear. It might start out sometimes as a terror, but it becomes this other kind of fear, the fear of a son before God, something that it never is when it's before some false god or before men. Like a child reveres his father. There's this reverence in it. Like a child loves his father, there's this love in this fear. Like a child is vulnerable to his father, there is vulnerability and sincerity in this fear of God. As a child is humbled before his father, there is humility before his greatness. As a child is bound to his father, this fear cleaves me to this Jehovah God. Like a child obeys his father fear leads me into obedience of this God. Under the fear of the Lord. No longer is my approval, my identity, my sense of who I am, something that I gain by the response of men. But it comes from Him. My relationship to Him. To the avoidance. Of the snare that comes from the fear of men. There are, the text tells us, God-ordained effects of both the fear of God and the fear of men. And the effect of the fear of men is that it places us in a snare. A snare is a trap, children, danger. Proverbs 29 verse 25, the fear of man bringeth a snare. Of course it does. Of course it does. Because what or who we fear will always determine how we live. And if we fear men, that fear of man will determine how we live. And man does not want us to live the way that God wants us to live. The fear of man brings a snare. As man seeks to lead us into a life that is opposed to God. That is love of sin and the entrapment of sin. It's danger, the fear of man. My decisions, my priorities, my words, my actions are all determined By who it is, I fear. So if a teenager gets finished with a shift at work, and the other fellow employees shutting the lights off, saying, let's go over to Mark's house. His parents aren't home. There's all kinds of beer, other things too. It's going to be great. And here's all the employees around you saying, let's go. And the fear of man brings a snare. Who will be great in your mind? Before whom will you live? From whom will you get your sense of identity, young person? And security. And sense of peace. Will it be from them? Who are saying, come with us and we will approve of you. And we will like you. Don't come with us and we will not approve of you. Are they great in your mind? Well then there's a snare for you. That's been set by that fear of man. Because now you live. In line with whom it is you fear. And you go. And you seek the approval of your God of men. And the snare has you in its trap of sin and the consequences. Apart from repentance, walking away from God into a life of opposition to Him. The fear of man always brings a snare. It sets a trap. Like every trap, there's bait. That's what that approval is. That approval is the bait. It feels good to be approved by others that are around us. To have them like me. To have them think highly of me. That's the bait that pulls. And the trap, the snare itself is the sin. And the consequences of that sin. So a college student steps into a classroom, perhaps, for the first time. He was around so many people who don't think of the sacred scriptures like he thinks or she thinks of the sacred scriptures and don't share the same worldview that he has. And he discovers very quickly that if there's going to be approval here, I'm going to have to give up my view of this book as the very words of God and the rule for my life. And the professors perhaps make very clear, maybe obviously saying so, maybe in not so many words, that you are to view this book as simply another piece of ancient literature like any other pieces of ancient literature. The Epic of Gilgamesh or something like that. And if you want our approval, and we're the smart ones, by the way, don't forget that. And if you want us to like you and approve of you, then you must think of it that way too. And who's going to be great in the mind? Is it men? They become my God, in whom I'm going to find my identity and my sense of self-worth and my peace and security. Or is it going to be him, God of heaven and earth? fear of man brings a snare. But in contrast, the text tells us that the fear of God brings two things, strong confidence and a refuge. 14 verse 26. And the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and his children shall have a place of refuge. Strong confidence and a refuge. Strong confidence, first of all. Strong confidence in three ways. First of all, confidence in who I am as His and my relationship to Him. If I fear this God, I reverence Him. He's big. He carries weight with me. Then my relationship to Him is everything. And I know He's mine and I'm His. An unbeliever doesn't fear this God, but I'm related to Him. See His holiness and His greatness. Carries weight with me. I am his child. I'm confident of that. And because I fear him, second, I honor his word. If he's so great and so glorious and so pure and holy and majestic and loving towards me, then his word is my life, and I have confidence in that word. The fear of man brings a strong confidence. And then finally, confidence that I'm His, confidence that His Word is truth, than this, confidence in who He is, and who I am, and who His Word is. Even in front of men, and even in situations where men does do not approve of me, and who tempt me, and who want to give me approval, If only I will walk away from this God. The fear of God produces a strong confidence so that you stand up before what would be the fear of man and say, but he is my God and him I love and him I serve and my identity is not found in you and your approval of me. It's Daniel's three friends before the fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. That means we're not hesitant to answer thee. We don't have to take great care. We don't have to stop and think about this. We have our answer ready. We're not hesitating. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king. That we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. A strong confidence in those men, because they feared the Lord. It doesn't matter what you do to us, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't fear you. We don't hold you in this high place. But our God is held in highest place. And our identity is wrapped up with him. Our sense of peace and security is found in him, not in you. You can do whatever you want to us. He can deliver us from this furnace if he wants to. And if he doesn't, it doesn't matter to us. Because he's ours and we're his. And he'll take us to glory to be by his side. Fear of the Lord produces strong confidence. The Lord is on my side. I Will not fear what man can do unto me. And even if that kind of threat never happens to you in your life. The fear of the Lord gives the people of God the confidence to live the way that God calls them to live in His covenant. And to know that that life that He calls for and He gives them is a refuge for them. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and His children shall have a place of refuge. Children, do you know what a refuge is? What do you think of when you think of a refuge? If you think of something like a castle, that's pretty good. That's about right. Something with thick and high walls and an iron barred gate. In which you can find safety and protection from danger. The fear of the Lord sets you in such a refuge. The refuge that is the life of God's covenant. A life of living within the bounds of his commands and law. The snare is out there. The bait is the trap of the approval of men. But the fear of the Lord leads me to reject that and gives me the safety, the refuge of living my life in line with his word so that I'm kept from all the snare of sin and the consequences of sin that destroys my life. I'm kept in the freedom and liberty of what it is to live in the bounds of his law and the gift of his covenant that opens up to me a life that is worth living, a life that brings honor to him and is good for others. A life that has eternal effects. And though it makes me different to live this way with different priorities, different motivations, different loves, different acts, different words. I'm fine with that. Because I fear the Lord. And I know the life that He's given me is a refuge. It's freedom, liberty, from all of that sneer that is about. But you know, a refuge, in many ways, is not all that different from a prison. They both have high, thick walls. They both have iron barred gates. They're both holding in and keeping others out. They're both impenetrable. It depends on with which eyes you're viewing it. That it's a refuge or a prison. Sometimes God's people, sometimes children, sometimes teenagers especially, but all of God's people. And start to view that life of God's covenant that is a refuge of protection, as a prison. It holds me in. that bars me in. And that keeps me from the real liberty that is outside of these not physical walls, spiritual walls of the life of God's covenant. For all the similarities between a refuge and a prison. They're as different from each other. As black is from white. The refuge is meant to provide liberty for all who are within. And safety. The prison is meant to provide bondage for those who are in. How do you look at it? How do you view the life? That this God calls you to live. Does it look like a refuge to you or does it look like a prison to you? It makes all the difference in the world. Is it keeping you safe from what is without? Or is it a bondage? keeping you from what you really want that is out there. And young people, are you growing to understand? Why the life of God's covenant is a refuge for you. Why it is safety. So that you're starting to say, I understand, I see in the life of God's people that once looked to me like a prison, keeping me back from real liberty and real freedom that was outside of God's commands. And now I'm seeing it, I'm understanding that this is a refuge for me. That this actually grants me liberty and freedom to live in accord with God's will. It gives me a life that is worth living and I'm learning this and I'm understanding this because I'm growing in the fear of the Lord and the fear of man is becoming less and less to me. People of God, may God use us as means in his hands. You can't give it to them. You can't give it to the next generation. You can't crawl inside of them and, and plant it there. That's the Spirit's work. But the Spirit uses means. And part of the means he uses is the people of God as adults now. Who teach the fear of the Lord to the generation that is to come. And how urgent this is because this is the question. It's the question underneath all the other questions. At the heart of all the questions. Will you fear God or will you fear men? All is determined by that. There are two generations in the text. And the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. And his children shall have a place of refuge in the fear of the Lord. For this generation is strong confidence for them. And it has this effect too, that for the children, they find it a place of refuge. And all of your giving to the next generation, are you giving this? and all of your teaching to the next generation. Are you teaching this? Come, ye children, hearken unto me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord, said David. How? How? First of all, by teaching the God who is to be feared. How great he is, and how glorious he is. How marvelous he is. And especially the combination of these twin attributes of his absolute holiness and of the depths of his grace and love. I bring them before the face of this God. and Everywhere in their life, everywhere they turn in the covenant community, I want them to be before the greatness of this God so that they learn the fear of the Lord. And then this too. We ourselves live. In the fear of the Lord. There were times in Israel's history. <clears throat> when she was guilty of. Only teaching the fear of the Lord. But not living in the fear of the Lord. And God was not mocked by it. Isaiah 29 verse 13. Wherefore the Lord said. For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth. and With their lips they do honor me. But have removed their heart from me. Their fear toward me is taught only by the precept of men. Their fear toward me is only taught by lesson, by precept, by command. Fear the Lord, you people, you children. And it must be taught that way, of course, absolutely. But not only that way, there must be more. Otherwise, it's just a shell, an empty shell of something that they hear about, but they don't see. And the fear of the Lord is something that cannot be faked. You can't fake it to them. It's a spiritual aroma that fills the house, that fills the church, fills the school. It's an atmosphere. It comes out in our prayers. It it comes out in our singing. It comes out in how we think and act. It comes out in what we do on vacation when nobody's watching I'm still before this God who's great to me and glorious to me. And I'm not before men. And He is my honor. He is my fear. And my identity is in Him. And my sense of self-worth is found in Him and Him alone in my relationship to Him. So that it's breathed out, breathed in by them as the Spirit works it into them. as we come before this great god humbled ourselves like peter at our own fear of man and how great it can be at times forgive me father for my love of men and in the forgiving of us makes himself great before us again overcoming the fear of man in us and by his grace in them Amen Father grant us thy wisdom and peace that we may fear thee as we ought we don't Father and forgive us for this and grow the fear of thyself in us